think of working with Embiid, I don't think of any of those challenges. I just think of two Philadelphia dudes standing back to back, me only coming up to his waist and whatever. Just kind of putting down for our cities. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Off the Top Podcast, the best podcast you've just found. Uh, I'm your host, Julian, over in the States, and my co-host is Jordan. Hey, man. Uh, yeah, so super excited for today, first off. And I want to just take one second to just say thank you for all the support we're getting on like all the 12 platforms that we're on as far as a podcast. Thank you for the you know emails that we're getting about people enjoying our podcasts. And you know, without further ado, uh, Julian, I am super excited about this. Let's get to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, as listeners, this is going to be a very valuable uh, podcast. Either if you follow this man or haven't heard of this man, there's going to be some wild stories to what, you know, his power is. And essentially, our guest today is a rare breed of creative. In an era of people with, you know, self-proclaimed titles, everyone on Twitter is an entrepreneur or is doing something, but no one's really showing work for it. Uh, we find ourselves with few that are actually putting in the work. And not only does our guest dabble in digital media and marketing, he also continues to work in design, product development, shows a pretty crazy skills in illustration, um, a deep passion for comics, and knows a thing or two about sneakers. Further solidifying his resume, he has worked with Dwayne Wade, Post Malone, and placed apparel on celebrities such as Justin Bieber and LeBron James. So those are just a couple names you guys might be familiar with. But we'd like to introduce and welcome Rack. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm excited to chop it up. And uh, way to make me sound important. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing light about that um, intro to me. I mean, Post Malone, when I saw that, was mind-boggling is the way Post Malone has blown up and what he's done for kind of that, you know, flex hip-hop creative zone. It was really cool to see it behind the scenes when you were working with him. Yeah. Um, Post is one of the most interesting people that I've ever uh, been around because he's so obviously extremely successful. I mean, he's like massively successful. I think he built or he beat the Thriller record, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for a number of weeks on the charts. So it's amazing how uh, incredibly talented and famous he is and how he doesn't seem to realize <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, he's the most down to earth, funny, cool, uh, unpretentious guy I've ever met. And so it was awesome to smash some, some Bud Light with him. Rack, um, I'm really curious when you get around, you know, creatives and people that operate on this super high creative level, do you find you know, some sort of common thread, be like, oh my gosh, I thought I was crazy for thinking this way, but look at Post, he's doing the same thing I am. Or is it just all love when you're, you know, hanging around each other? Um, There's sort of like this, I mean, obviously I'm not as successful as Austin, and that'd be, that's something to strive for, for sure. But there is sort of this fraternity of people who have done it their way, um, very non-traditionally. And, uh, it's sort of empowering or validating, I guess, to be around people that have done it so well, for sure. And the one thing I wanted to ask in that regard is seeing that you've worked with these celebrities and, you know, different brands and to the, the front end, a lot of people don't understand essentially, you know, how you're involved in the process or, you know, essentially where your hands are playing you know, playing. Um, do you believe that, you know, the work behind the scenes is kind of deeply unappreciated for, you know, what you do and what you're producing? Um, I think so. I think, well, 
if it's not underappreciated, it's just not understood, I would think is probably a better way to put it. I don't think anybody uh, who's in a position as powerful as mine, for lack of a better word, um, behind the scenes, I don't think you could get there if you were really concerned about how much attention you would get for it. Um, this, this sort of this side of the industry, the getting our hands dirty, um, doing doing the real work, I guess, uh, as opposed to what just hits your timeline. Um, in those circles, you don't want to be the guy looking for attention and you don't want to be the guy uh, sort of claiming your work is a big thing that you see people do when they're when they're not professionals like, oh, you saw that I was responsible for X, Y and Z and that, you know, I stay away from it um, quite a bit. In fact, like this year I had my first Jordan campaign and I'm sure absolutely no one knows what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you just take those those wins for yourself you want to be the guy um you know act like you've been there before type thing and uh just just kind of crush it those are personal victories and i think that's something that's a little unique about the people who end up in positions like mine um are that you're able to sort of separate um your personal brand which is such a for uh, like a catchphrase at the moment um from your work. And I, and that's something that I definitely do. I think my personal brand actually is, man, he's pretty vague about what he does. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, just to like go on that a little bit longer, I think that therein lies the beauty of truly what you do and the fact of you understand, or, you know, a lot of artists understand who do the same things that are along the same, you know, in the same breed as you is they realize how important the focus should be on the art or the product that they're delivering and are not focused on how much personal acclaim they get themselves. It's about the product and what they put into it. And that's the beautiful part, right? Yeah. To me, it's about um, the art. So it's all art. I'm an artist. That's my answer. When people ask me what I am, I don't, I don't use words like influencer or entrepreneur or whatever. I don't know. I, don't, I guess my business card reads something about marketing, but I don't even really use that. I just say I'm an artist. So um, my focus is on sort of thinking creatively, um, rolling out creative uh, marketing strategy, um, creative user experience, those sort of things. So to me, it's like um, similar to like to give an ex- not to compare myself, but to give an example, um, what Banksy did recently when he uh, shredded his artwork in front of all of those people like that's about that's about that moment. You know, and again, just a it's a very thin example comparatively to what I've to what I've done, obviously. But um, I kind of just sit back similarly right in the back corner of the room and, and watch it happen. That's very rewarding to me. And not only that, like I was alluding to earlier, um, the industry doesn't take kindly to the people who put themselves in front of the brand that they're working for or the product. You know, we play for the name on the front of our jerseys, not the back. Yeah. One thing I wanted to gloss on there in reference to Banksy, do you think he was pretty upset when it didn't shred completely? Because I saw, you know, the background, his plan was having it shred completely. And now that, it, you know, they reserved it and the value shot up, like how upset do you think he is that it didn't go essentially the way he planned? I think it, I think it displays better as art. So in some, in some part, some less pretentious part of his brain. He's probably like, yeah, it's pretty cool that they can hang it up like that. I mean, that's how I would feel. I, I mean, I would real, I would realize that they would sell their friggin' scraps if it had gone all the way through. They would have fi- figured out some way to sell that because it had already become such a moment. Um, 
but I'd be pretty happy if it was my artwork that it could still hang in in the way that it left. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And just to like go full circle back around rack. Um, so this, uh, you know, what you've created, this person that you are, the um, the influence that you have over so many different industries and worlds. Uh, let's go back to kind of like where it started. I know as a child who grew up in the 90s, what do you recall about the personalities and creativity and expression of that decade? Well, uh, I say it often, and I think every generation does, but um, I, I guess we should start this or uh, begin the conversation by saying I, I think unquestionably growing up in the 90s was the greatest generation of all time. Um, my dad might say something similar about the 60s and I'm sure his dad about the 40s or whatever the hell but uh, the 90s you know was incredible and um, one of the and one of the reasons that I say that so proudly is because I feel like a product of the 90s. I'm generation X. I'm not a millennial or a quasi millennial or a whatever zennial whatever they call it. <laughs> I'm I'm generation X hardcore um meaning that I I grew up with Pac and uh Kurt Cobain and Trent Reznor and Marilyn Manson and the idea that I should just be myself at all costs um I think I really feel like that was the battle cry of generation X was like you know, your your teachers don't get it and your parents want you to fall in line and you're supposed to grow up and wear a tie. You know, fuck that. Can I curse, by the way? I hope I can. 100%. I think, okay, I think I've been cursing. <laughs> um, so I, I distinctly remember, um, like, at a very early age, listening to, like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers on my yellow Sony Sports Walkman, thinking to myself, like, man, fuck algebra. I don't need algebra, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, uh, it just so happened that when I was in those formidable, formidable, um, uh, middle school years, I was also discovered for being, um, a pretty, pretty incredible for, I, mean, I hate to big myself up, but the fact of the matter was I could do things in the art room that, um, no one else really could in, in my age group. So, uh, around the same time I was developing this like rebellious mid nineties, um, generation X, uh, sort of ethos was like encompassing my personality. I was also recognized for being a bit of an art prodigy. So I was like confident that I could do it my own way, uh, at a very young age, much to the dismay of my parents. I mean, I was like, Jesus, uh, the worst nightmare possible for two, um, immigrant parents who had worked their ass off to give me opportunities and i was just like yeah you know what i don't need class i could do this look at what i can do and, uh, yeah. it took us a long it took us a long time to to reconcile that i was probably that i was right in the in the end but um i wasn't fortunate enough to grow up in the 90s born in the 90s didn't really get to experience it and that's my favorite thing when i look back at some of the film and you know some of the trends or the personalities back there it was like yeah it was just very you know be yourself creativity um you know everything was just what people wanted to do like like you said you you know 
dabbled in art and you were this art prodigy and you were just creating for you as I feel, you know, my generation and later generation that's like, they're not creating or doing for themselves. They're just like, oh, I saw, you know, so-and-so on Instagram hit, you know, 100K likes for this sweet, you know, this sweet viral video. That's what I want to do. I want to be them. I don't want to be myself. And that's what I, you know, miss about the 90s when things were thriving and hip hop and everyone was doing their own thing to be them and put out their message. Cause that's the other thing I feel is lost is like the nineties. There's just so many messages and like a bigger picture things is now it's very short term, short cycled ideas you see coming through. Yeah. Um, to give an example, literally from the nineties playground, uh, from which I was born, I think these kids now, uh, it's about attention, and there's something there's something to that a hundred percent. Like if I, if you can get my attention and I can't ignore you, to some extent you've won. Like I'm about to say fucking DJ Academics name on record, which I wish, which I wish I could avoid doing. But he's such a good example of like, God, if I can't ignore this guy, he's just gonna keep winning. And on my playground, there were kids like that. There was a kid we nicknamed Scissors because he used to cut girls' ponytails off. And you just, couldn't, <laughs> you just couldn't look away from him. But I didn't want to be him. No way. I, you know, I wanted to be um, the coolest kid. I didn't want to be some kid just, like, acting a fool for attention and, and jumping around. I wanted to be, you know, among the best dressed and among the most talented. Um, I was a bit of an athlete, so, you know, at least the hardest working athlete um that I could be because I was a little undersized and whatnot. I, I won't say that I was some star athlete, but you'd never questioned my work ethic or, you know, I, I didn't fail to put points on the board. Those were the things or pulling girls. I mean, if we're being frank, um, being a bit of a ladies man was everything in the world in middle and high school. So um I didn't want to be the guy that was just uh doing wild shit for attention. And I think the social media age has sort of celebrated that guy instead of the people maybe doing their own thing. Yeah, I think you definitely have a great point in that sense. And uh, another thing, too, that I totally can understand growing up with having those many influences. And even I know that you're a big Rick James fan and your dad is, too. And so I could imagine like, you know, that sense of style and Rick James being such a ladies man and almost a man's man in the sense of how artistic and how smooth he is. I could see that playing a huge role in everything. Yeah, I always tell my dad, um, so Rack is short for Racanello, which is my last name, and I sort of adopted that from my dad who went by Rack Attack um, growing up. And he, so he he's like, I always tell him too, he's the original cool. He uh, was in Nike Sportswear the day I was born until till today, and uh, we had fresh sneakers because he wanted us to, <laughs> and um, he was a hell of an athlete. A hell, like a legendary, legendary ladies man. All respect due to my mother for uh, <laughs> for calming him down a bit. Um, but he's from Orange, New Jersey, and if you're in Orange, New Jersey, and you bring up our last name, I mean, you'll hear stories forever. Whether it's the time him and his best friend Mike Matulo beat up all of South Orange, or the time that you know he stole some so and so's girl, or he kicked a sixty five yard punt, or whatever, and. Um, so growing up, it kind of felt like there was, first of all, there was never any question of like, my dad could beat up your dad. That was like unquestionable. My dad was a nose tackle. He was like ginormous. And to this day, he looks like a bodybuilder. But aside from that, he was also 
definitely the coolest dad. I'm sure you you know who the coolest dad was in your friend group when you were growing up. Um, I'm sure you can mm-hmm. think of him instantly. It was unquestionably my dad. Um, so for a long time, I was like son of rack, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and I was just very proud at one point or another to be like, hey, you know what? I'm doing really cool things and old man's sort of semi-retired now. So it's my name now. You did know? you did you I know you're kind of on your, you know, putting out your own message for most of the 90s. But did you ever feel any sort of pressure or, you know, extra eyes because you were, quote unquote, the son of Rack during that time? Yeah. You know, what's funny is um, first of well, my dad, his clout, so to speak, came um, from those like traditionally, you know, there was pre-social media. Uh, he was like the only white guy at Orange High. He was like the only one to get a uh, college uh, football scholarship. He had done really incredible things playing football. Uh, he was a hell of a baseball player, too. He was a charismatic ladies man. Uh, he was the only white dude, so he had a whole lot of cool um, in terms of the music that he listened to. And like he played alto sax, which I always thought was fucking wicked. <laughs> and um, my friends unquestionably um like thought my dad was the shit so there was like there was like i could be as cool as i was on the playground or whatever and then it was just like oh your dad's the man you know um and there was a little bit of me that was like uh i don't want to say i I was i was loving it but i was also like you know i want to be the man the way my dad is the man like in in the neighborhoods uh that we always lived in and certainly uh in the neck of the woods where he's from he's unquestionably the man and he's and he's always been wow that's a yeah i could totally understand you know almost having this almost bigger than life dad in the way that people see him you kind of happen to live in that shadow for a little bit but and then in those cases i feel like you branch out to more creative avenues kind of like you did and another thing that uh, i feel like goes along those lines of doing you know finding you and being that great artist is your kind of your presence on comic books and i know that was a huge role as well and still is a huge interest of yours yeah, so we talked a little bit before we came on air. I would say uh, in my hierarchy of interests, uh, movie and film is probably number one. And then second to that would be uh, comic books in that whole nerd world. Um, uh, definitely legitimately a fan of that. Not like once they started making movies. I'm talking about when I had to ride my bike very quickly away from bullies. Um <laughs> I'm talking about then when you paid a cost to be a comic book fan. Um, I'm I'm a hundred percent to the bone a comic book fan, and then I would say maybe menswear and sneakers. And then to that point, you know, talking about my father again, he was into he was cool by very traditional means. He was very good looking. He was in incredible shape. His six pack had a six pack, and he was an incredible all state um, nose tackle. You know, um, from a small town in which he was the very tough Italian guy. And so here I was like um, talking about coming up in his shadow, like I want to be cool, too, but I read comic books and I get beat up for it. And um, I'm an OK athlete, but it takes an awful lot of effort. Um, I want to learn how to play guitar and I can paint really well. So we, I was not uh, following directly in his footsteps for sure. It's uh, it's funny that you talk about 
people who are listening that you're comparing today's quote unquote Marvel fans and the, you know, the OGs, so to speak, and that times were extremely different. I feel like for me, my, my example of that would be, you know, you know, trading cards and sports were huge in you know, the nineties and late two thousands. And nowadays, I don't know if people still do it, but, you know, having that possession and being able to, you know, walk to the store and get a pack of cards with some bubble gum was always, always killer for me as a kid. So I want to know, Rack, how do you feel about, you know, Marvel coming out and being huge today with a lot of people who claim to understand the MCU to its fullest, but only somewhat understand the surface of the MCU because they've seen, you know, six Marvel movies. So this is, um, I might get a little too in depth with this answer, but I thought about this a lot because initially in my gut reaction, like a lot of people who are very passionate about something is like, man, get off my lawn. You don't belong here. You didn't pay the dues to, to enjoy this mm-hmm. with me. Fuck you. You know, um, the other end of that though, is that like, I have I'm enjoying the fact that I'm like, what a time to be alive, man. Imagine if I was 20 years older and like, I didn't get these movies or, um, 20 years younger. And I didn't know what it was like before comic books were the shit, you know? So I feel very lucky to have, uh, paid the cost to be a legitimate fan and to have read these books for 30 years and now get to see these movies, um, and be a part of it. And then like, as that sort sort of starts to soften my exterior, I'm like, man, it's kind of cool that these, you know, that these dudes that, you know, probably picked on me or whatever could bring their kids to fall in love with these movies, you know, mm-hmm. and that it's kind of brought every like everybody together, their billion dollar um, enterprises or something like Black Panther could be such like a monumental moment that meant so many, so much, so many people and the the fact that something that, that like I was in love with became so hugely important to everybody um in in so many different ways is kind of like you know it's heartwarming you're like okay cool you're all right with me i just hate talking comic books with people who only know what they've seen on on the big screen that's the that's the worst i don't want to argue with people about vibranium versus adamantium or whatever that's like come on go home I'm really excited for since the acquisition of Fox. I, I'm a big Doctor Doom guy, and I really hope that when if they go that route or they bring Doctor Doom in, that they do it. You know, I assume they do it right. Or if they bring Galactus in, he's not a giant purple cloud to to say. <laughs> so, uh, real comic book fans know that getting the Fantastic Four is uh, incredibly important. Not only for the core four characters, but uh, their sort of universe of characters. Um, they're not, despite the way Fox has treated them, <laughs> they're they're not like this silly little ragtag family. Um, they're extremely important, especially Reed Richards to so many. Uh, he's by far the most intelligent character in the Marvel Universe, first of all. Second of all, they're important and integral to things like Secret Wars, um, other like culmination events that I assume that Marvel will approach with the MCU. And so uh, I'm pretty excited that they're back in Marvel's control. And I think it's going to be really something for the public to be reintroduced to the Fantastic Four and to see uh, see them done right. And then how really like super integral they are to everything moving forward. That is if they do everything, you know, correctly. 
we'll we'll see. But at least in the comic books, they're sort of like uh, they're the first Marvel superhero team, if I'm not mistaken. And so since the beginning, if they're not the first, they're no, you know what? I'm gonna pretty confidently say they were the first. Um, and so they've sort of been at the core of tons and tons and tons of stories that that are now you know open to be to be reconceived for the mcu yeah so so my question now is going to be you know while movies in are huge in general now because you know the access social media pumps them out out the woodwork uh, what you know when you went to college um, on a full ride for graphic design and animation essentially what made you find that passion for movies and film it's funny because um my my idea of getting a degree um in those subjects was like half get a get a degree from my parents who want that so badly and then half well if i want to be an artist i got to figure out a way to get paid to be an artist and so graphic design sounded a lot like Oh, we'll pay you to be an artist, you know? So I was like, okay, cool. And then in the meantime, I was like, I want to learn how to make cartoons. And that's where the animation minor came from. Um, then uh, in, in studying animation, I had to study film and video editing. And it was just another medium, I would say, uh, I was uniquely talented. Like, so I have, I have two sort of God-given talents. One, I would say, is... Um, that I'm extremely confident and that's how I get away with saying things like, Hey, I've got two God given talents. Um, the other is that, uh, I'm a very good artist. And so depending on, depending on the medium, you know, um, but video was another one where like, as soon as I understood the tools, I was like, okay, leave me alone. I got to build something really great. Go away. You know? Uh, so when I was in college, like I became really good friends with my, uh, my film professor, uh, Bart Capiano, shout out to Bart. We ended up just smoking weed together and making really cool movies because he was <laughs> like, I can't, I can't teach you anything. And, uh, I, I would much rather just make something with you. So that's, that's basically how that part of my college education went. I first off, really, I'm a really big fan of, you know, Rack's life in the sense of how you tell the story. It's very, um, uh, may I say, uh, pretty big on kind of like Quentin Tarantino-esque on how you kind of don't mind telling a story in reverse order or opposite order or give you insight of the middle and then fill you in on the back end afterwards about how it started. So I really appreciate that. And I could definitely see how that, you know, your film and your film education is influenced more than just kind of having a chill and kickback a really cool college life. <laughs> yeah, uh Rack's life is interesting because well everything I've done on YouTube is interesting because I've been like I've put out product on YouTube where I've I've purposely like or I've told myself you know what for this for this platform for this audience like this is this is this is good enough or highbrow enough, you know. Uh it was certainly better than anything around and I, and I think I could say that pretty confidently that it influenced everybody i mean if you if you if your favorite youtuber is mr fomer simpson and you get fomer simpson mike alone and you ask him you know who are who are your favorite youtubers he'll bring up rack's life and if you say if you press again and you say you know uh what about it he would be like oh man he's so influential from the way we do this or the way we do that or the transitions we use here or using covers of popular music to avoid copyright or whatever number of things that he may have taken and 
if Jacques Slade is your favorite YouTuber, you might notice that I've got uh, art direction credits on some Jacques Slade videos because he felt that he had so directly copied something that I did that he that he decided to give me a, a legit credit for it. Um, or Nightwing might say, man, come on back. We need you or whatever, you know, so um, it was all. But I'm getting the point I'm getting to is that was all sort of unintentional. Um, I'm such a video editing like movie geek guy that I'm that I'm um, that if I were to really give it my efforts, I would probably make some kind of like short film, something scripted. Um, but those YouTube videos, as fun as they are, they've always existed to me as sort of like this playful thing that I do sometimes. The one thing that it's, it's frustrating to me about the YouTube space is it just doesn't seem right. There's something that seems like it's missing where I, I can't put my finger on it. And I don't know if maybe it's the way it's trending or the recent antics of YouTube, but it just feels like, you know, from your like following your YouTube lifespan as you you know put out work when you want to it just doesn't seem like you get credited enough um not saying you know that's what you're looking for but it seems like people who do find your videos really enjoy them and it just seems like there's this something with youtube in general whether it is sneakers or it's music or it's tech whatever it may be that it's just like this maybe it's the searchability or you know the ability to find something deeper than you know the top 10 five youtubers in that genre makes it really hard for me to like really want to push towards youtube right so i think the problem there that you're describing is that youtube sort of as a platform rewards the wrong things so i don't need credit i can <laughs> my career is my credit like where where i am in life is all the validation that i really need but um you won't see my stuff because it's not catered or doesn't really play this youtube game uh, which is like I needed to get clicks and then I need you to watch so much of it and then uh, I need to place ads strategically because what YouTube really rewards is like how many times people are clicking it, how much of it they're watching and how many ads are successfully executed in that amount of time. Um, that's not an artist's platform. That's a business platform. Um, and that's why, you know, the best the best at YouTube stop their videos right after 10 minutes when they've gotten three successful autoplay ads in and their title was something like, uh, I punched my mom for a pair of sneakers so that you couldn't avoid <laughs> clicking on it. Uh, it's just a reward system that isn't really uh, catered to, to artistry whatsoever, which is cool. I mean, it's their own thing. We can go to Vimeo. Where Vimeo has like panels of people who watch your short films and rank them and suggest them accordingly. And But that's just not that's just not 2018 enough, you know, it's just not what these, this is a very strange audience right now, for lack of a better word. Uh, and that's just not what they're looking for at the moment. So YouTube continues to kick ass and uh, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. And I, I think with YouTube, uh, my other gripe is I think it, yeah, like you said, it rewards a bad thing. Like as a, you know, maybe when I was a teenager, click kind of clickbait videos, you know, did the justice for me. I was like, wow, well, I can't believe they did this. And, you know, some of them were honest, some of them weren't. And I think maybe that's just, you know, like you said, it being a business platform, so-and-so sees, you know, their favorite YouTuber use clickbait. So they use clickbait and then you kind of just get, you know, it's more quantity over quality. And there's some people who put out really quality work that, you know, reap the rewards. Like I'm a big fan of MKBHD who puts out a good amount of quantity, but also 
really good quality. And then on the other end, you have people who are just pumping out videos that are, you know, 15 or 20 minutes long, you know, half assed to meet those requirements and get paid, which there's nothing wrong there. But it seems, you know, more are looking for, you know, that payday rather than getting, you know, to my standards of, you know, a quality or something I enjoy watching, you know, if I subscribe to seeing them day in or every couple of days is worth it. Yeah, I think there's a couple things at play there. I think, like you said, uh, quality over quantity is important, and um, you definitely, you know, I have named a couple channels that are definitely doing that. But I think for me, the most attractive thing is creativity. So I think if you're going to turn on a camera and you're going to film something and you're going to attempt to, uh, to entertain me, there's things that you should know that you that you don't right so like i wouldn't call anybody on youtube with the exception of like a very small maybe two percent section an actual filmmaker you know i don't think that they know so there's an interesting uh if you guys have a minute (laughs) there's an interesting uh cognitive study called the dunning-kruger effect are you guys familiar with that at all no i'm not okay so dunning-kruger effect is that this guy in pittsburgh had seen that they used lemon juice as invisible ink at, you know, at some point in history. And so he's watching it and he decides I'm going to rob a bank and I'll just cover my face in lemon juice. And because my face will be covered in lemon juice, it'll be invisible to the cameras. Right. So he goes in there and he robs this bank. Uh, this guy's name was MacArthur Wheeler. If you guys want to follow along on Google or whatever at home. And, um, Obviously, he was arrested very quickly (laughs) and like and he was so like outraged, like, how can you see me? It was like comical, you know, I got lemon juice on my face and it was so comical and like startling that it caught the attention of these two. I want to say they were Cambridge professors, um, Dunning and Kruger. And uh, what they found was this is actually like a cognitive basis event. This is like a true, true event. a truth about humans. And that is like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So he was a hundred percent confident because all he knew is that lemon juice to some degree had been used for invisibility. Right. (laughs) And so since he didn't know anything about cameras or the reality of light refractment or even robbing a bank, he was a hundred and fifty fucking percent confident going in there covered in lemon juice. Right. So I apply that same as a filmmaker, like as a true studied film artisan, if you will. I apply that same effect when I'm watching YouTube. I'm like, this is a guy with lemon juice on his face. Like, this is a guy who just doesn't know better, right? Like, he just doesn't call it when he calls this a series or a script or he calls himself a creator or this is my short or whatever. I'm just looking at a guy covered in lemon juice. I'm like, this is just a guy who doesn't know all there is that he doesn't know, you know? And, um, that's why it's not very attractive to me as a platform is, is like, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write a script and cast a, a short film and try to say something important and try to shoot it, shoot it, you know, innovatively and release it using youtube premiere and tell you guys about it and make a trailer and do all of these things so that it could be uh out viewed by like kais walking down melrose like that's like i'm like fuck you know um so anyway that's that's my sort of 
deep analysis of of YouTube. It's an amazing platform for lemon juice film creators. <laughs> Poetically said, definitely. Um, and I think that you know, just to do a short comment and then move on, I think that that's like kind of the beautiful part about YouTube and the fact that you and the frustrating part where you have so many people coming together and sharing ideas and other people are receiving them. So you build these communities and a part of building a community is delineating and defining how your guys are alike, which then, you know, shows other people how you're not alike to them. And so you have these purists, let's say, like, you know, the people that actually produce and make really solid quality. And then you have a community that is more interested in kind of extracting the, you know, the YouTube algorithm for all of its views. And there you have these two people that, you know, don't definitely, definitely don't see eye to eye, but at the same time are kind of in the game for different reasons. Yeah. And going back to the Dunning-Kruger effect, like it's funny as hell when it's applied to a guy who was trying to rob a bank. But the reason I bring it up is because it's a, it's a truth. It's a truth about people. Uh, you only know, you know, you know, you don't know what you don't know is basically what it boils down to. So like, I'm not knocking people on YouTube when I'm saying that. I'm just saying that's specifically why it's not the platform for me. If there was a platform that did millions and millions of views daily for people to uh, publish and monetize short film, like legitimate short film by people who do know what they don't know <laughs> and do know what it ta- what it takes to produce that sort of stuff. I would I would be happy to to publish on in that space for sure. Uh, the Dunning Kruger effect sounds very relevant to a lot of things, and like when you're talking about it, I think of it kind of going back to the intros, like all of the self-proclaimed jobs or titles, kind of how you touched on where people are saying they they're doing this or taking part in this, where, you know, they're like, Oh, you this, I worked on this project and it was super easy. You know, I did this touch, but really they just have no clue to what it really means to have that title or, you know, be on that level that they think they're on because they have 1500 followers on Instagram. Yeah. It's, it's definitely strange. I mean, even in, uh, and some of the work that I do working with like real mar- real marketing departments at huge brands will send me stuff uh, that's not formatted correctly for social media, that's not in the right color space for print, that's not up to the correct resolution uh, a lot of times. So it's like, again, just they're, they're 100% confident in hiring that person and that person's 100% confident in selling and sending that email because they don't know what they don't know. And that's uh, that's the reality of it. And then, you know, uh, my employer and and uh, or the people that work with me, they take a lot of confidence in like, oh, good. He knows how to fix this or he knows how it's supposed to be. So kind of talking about how you've dabbled with a lot of giant corporations, so to speak, or marketing departments. When you got out of college, what was kind of, you know, your first big job or that you felt was big? you know, from moving on out of college? Uh, so directly out of college, just, just to not <laughs> to not come off pretentious or whatever, I served at the Olive Garden. And um, it wasn't until one day when somebody asked me to get them breadsticks with no butter and garlic, which was really hard to do. I mean, you had to beat the guy <laughs> who was taking them out of the oven. Um, <clears throat> I, I, anyway, they asked for that and I said no. And then I was like, I got to go. And uh, 
So I immediately left and had no job. So that was that was immediately after college. Um, but it did spark something in me where I was like, man, I don't want to do that kind of work anymore. And I kind of want to work for myself. So the first gig, uh, so to speak, was actually a very successful one. I worked with a couple of guys that were starting a business called Vision Tech. And what Vision Tech did was video yearbooks uh, in the New York City area. So we would send videographers to your high school or college, and we would record uh, sort of monumental moments, much like the yearbook staff would do. And then um, me and a buddy of mine, Eric D'Alessandro, shout out to Eric D'Alessandro, and you should follow him on social media. He's doing a lot of really cool things today too. Um, but at the time, we were just these two young uh, loudmouth kids who could video edit our asses off and uh, we would take those moments and actually make them cool you know not like in a uh, not in like the way your your mother might do your your hoops highlight tape right like we were actually cool guys who liked the music that you liked who the girls in your class had crushes on and we were editing uh, your video yearbook so they were very very popular extremely popular and uh, so my first my first sort of job was already entrepreneurial and that as soon as we met those guys, we were like, we're the guys you need and we're going to go sell these bigger schools and we want commission on the sales for the bigger schools. And um, so, yeah, for years, I went around New York City uh, selling schools, basically continuing to be in high school, which was kind of cool, uh, going, <laughs> going to all those events and um producing what was in the end a really cool product like i'm still proud of the stuff that we gave those kids those kids um they do not have cheesy yearbook memories or whatever they have some really cool uh well-produced special effects and awesome music of the time uh pieces to remember their their high school years with that actually sounds so cool in the sense of you know if you think about it you guys are telling the story with the like the best um, in the best ways, as far as, you know, it could just be, you know, oh, okay, this high school is having its homecoming football game. And it happens that this school hasn't won a game since 1994, but you make it like the coolest, they run out of the tunnel, you know, like with the effects, I'm sure there's explosions, you know, it's probably like a tiger yelling in the background or, you know, just so amazing how you can just tell a story about something that's ordinary into something that's extraordinary, which I find, you know, super cool. And that's why I think that, you know, it's something that's salient and stands out is that it's pure creation in that aspect. And it sounds like you guys had a lot of fun doing that as well. Yeah, I think the coolest thing about it is we knew we were working with uh, the best times that those kids would ever have. You know, we had been through it. We were already missing it. We already knew it was never going to get better than that. Um, so we would attract, like, we would treat homecoming football. And I remember distinctly having conversations and being like, okay, this is going to feel like fucking remember the Titans <laughs> for this whole scene, you know? Or like prom night is going to feel like can't hardly wait. And you're like, yes, dude, I know the perfect for foreign exchange student i met him at pasta night last week or whatever um and we would tell really 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 fun stories and very cinematically um produce, we maybe overproduced that product to be honest for the money that we were making but it was like it was really cool it was like getting 
we knew how good the stories and characters were because we were already out of high school, right? But when you're in high school and you're living it, you just think it's the worst. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool. It was really, really cool to give them a product that was like, look how cool you guys are and that this time of your life really is, you know? And then they would watch it and be like, holy shit, my life's a movie. This is badass, you know? Uh, so I'm assuming this was like kind of mid to late 2000s you were doing this. Was it tough to tough to kind of wrap the idea of a video yearbook or like a, you know, a higher quality video yearbook to um, some, I would assume it's an older education staff and, you know, might not be on the level of what you guys were doing. What was that conversation like? Uh, It was difficult. So I got out of that business in 2011. I think I started in like 2006. So um, in the beginning, it was about cost. Like, yeah, this this sounds wonderful, but you know, the cost was a big issue. And so we didn't immediately get a lot of public schools in particular, but we were able to get a lot of Catholic and private schools that cost a fucking shit ton anyway, because they were like using it as a perk to, to sell people on, on their, um, their tuitions and whatnot. So that was easy. Then we were, we found that one of the best ways to sell was through the coaching staff. Like, Hey, we'll have somebody at every game professional recording your games as a perk here you know, hey, help us out, wink, wink. Then a lot of coaches would run your book. So that was a double wink, wink. We found creative ways as businessmen to sort of get our in. Um, and then several times we did it for free the first year. And then we just n- kicked ass. And then if you can imagine um, the junior class that was coming up under the senior class being told that they weren't going to get one, it was like we had 300 people on our sales force. You know, they were like, no, we want the video yearbook. Um and and that's sort of how we built that business. And then towards the end of that business, like 2011, I really wanted to transition the business into iTunes. I kind of saw what was happening in the space and I thought it'd be really cool if on your iPod touch or whatever, you could just download the event a couple of days after it happened, similar to the way YouTube works. Um, and then I thought about maybe publishing it to YouTube and to like a school's channel and building channels for the school and everybody could see and it would be easy to share it with your grandma and blah, 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 blah. Um, and unfortunately, the partners in the in the space were like, you know, we have invested so much in burning DVDs and, you know, people are still going to want to hold physical media and they weren't as future thinking as I was. And I was like, no, they're definitely not going to want to carry around DVDs for the rest of their lives. Um, and so I got out, I cashed out, you know, my percentage of the business and, and moved on. And, uh, interestingly enough, I've never looked back, so I'd really don't know what they've gotten into, but I do know that when I left, they weren't thinking far enough in the future. That's for sure. So you, you leave in 2011, you're kind of on more of your understanding how the times are changing and you know, how, I guess tech is evolving and media and the internet is coming into play. What did you have, you know, a goal or a place you wanted to be, or did you just further solidify, you know, you wanted to work, continue to work for yourself? I knew. So I left with money, first of all, which was, um, which is key here. Um, you guys might remember like when we were going through the show notes and stuff, like I don't like to talk about my degree or, um, what school I went to or where I'm from or any of those like particulars, because I don't like people to hear a story um, and associate like 
success or whatever with a certain number of conditions, right? So I like to preface like where I'm like that I got that job and I earned that equity in that company without having to have been from anywhere or have gone to any particular school or invested any particular amount of money, right? So this story is obviously about to transition now where I've cashed out equity on a successful business and I'm able to do some things uh, independently. But to this point, if you're following along at home, I didn't need to be from any particular place and I didn't need any particular degree and I didn't need... um, you know, to to be any particular person or invest any of my own money, right? So you could get that far today, like if you just get up and go do something. And that's an important message of mine. That's why I don't like to, to specify anything else. Um, so anyway, now I'm leaving with a little bit of money, okay? Uh, whatever my 20% of the sale of the company was, it was sold to Jostens, uh, which oh, wow. is the biggest yearbook company. Yeah. So... Now I've got a little bit of money, and my initial thought is um, that I don't specifically want to work for anyone. I'll work with people, and that's an idea uh, that I exercise today as well. Um, and so, so some of the decisions that you make when you when you decide to do that is you're going to be paid by 1099, mm-hmm. right? So you're going to be an independent contractor. You're going to have to handle your own taxes, things along those lines. You have to keep your own expenses and whatnot. Um, and the advantages of that are. You're not held to the successes or the failures of the people that you work with. Um, And that's very freeing as an artist, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so that's really all I knew at that point is that I didn't want to go back into like a W-9 standard employee-employer contract and um, like die in a cubicle somewhere. I mean, that was just the only thing I definitely didn't want to do. And the little bit of money that I had you know, afforded me the uh, amount of time that I would need to figure out my next move. Wow. Gotcha. That sounded like you kind of, um, you know, you set yourself up in the perfect way of having this springboard where, you know, you gained a lot of skills, you learned a bit about yourself as well. Um, and then you came out with just enough to kind of figure out your next move and um, get yourself situated and set up for you know, your next path as far as being somebody who works with people and not for someone and, you know, almost blazing your own trail in that sense. And so where did that end you up? Like, what was your, what was the next move as far as Rack now working with people? Where did you end up? So I, um, I decided that I liked business development at the time. And so for the next two opportunities that I worked on in my career, um, I sort of positioned myself as a creative business thinker. And um, so I would work with businesses to get them where they wanted to be. And I uh, did that very small time to, to start. I had a friend that was a personal trainer and he wanted to reach a certain number of people in North Jersey. And so I would creatively think of ways to do that. Um, or I had Fred that played in a band and he wanted more people attending his shows. So I would think of creative ways to do that. And just so that I'm giving examples and not just saying creative ways to do that, like uh, I would make I would make friends at all of the local hotels, for example, and then we would leave little pamphlets of like what's to do in Philadelphia today. And and when you stayed, one of the suggestions would be to see the band, but we would leave, you know, other valuable suggestions as well. And so that it, it seemed like a valid thing to do to come check out this band. 
um, that's an example of like a creative thing that your your buddy's garage band might not be doing. You know? um, so I would do things like that for a while. And then I got introduced to a guy who was working with an investor in Saudi Arabia. And that investor wanted to do a lot of things to try to westernize Saudi. Um, which is an interesting thing because uh, Saudi's got a lot of money. And um, what it afforded me as like a young creative business person was uh, the ability to make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was able to take that position and be like, they would be like, we want Discovery Network the discovery network that you see on TV, um, not only airing in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but allowing us access to their archive of footage. And I would be like, okay, with my God given confidence, with my God given confidence. And I would immediately have no idea whatsoever how to get that started. And then I'd get a bank wire for $12,000 to get started. So I'd be like, okay, well, we'll figure this out, you know? That's more that's more money than I had ever made in a week ever. Um so again I would get creative and it sounds like a chapter from some biography about Steve Jobs or something but what I would do was literally just ride up and down the elevator of that building and bring gifts to the secretary at Discovery Network like literally every other day. Um and until, until I got a meeting with a guy named Carl Goss who handle licensing for discovery network. So I don't know, I didn't know anything about business international business liaison, which is that position. I didn't know anything about media rights. Uh, I didn't know anyone at the discovery network. Um, I didn't know anything to, to speak about my employer in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I just said yes and got 12 grand and figured it out. And so that's why I, um, it's one of the, Many reasons why I say that's a God-given gift of mine to just have that confidence because that position and landing that discovery deal um, really changed my life significantly. Um, it raised the price, so to speak. You know, the saying, prices went up uh, for sure. I was a lot more valuable a person to work with for sure. And I began to work on a really aggressive campaign, which was to bring Victoria's Secret to the most uh, absolutely religiously stringent country in the entire universe. So I worked very closely with limited brands to make that happen. That was a historical moment when that happened. Um, and I was like 27 living on a country club. I was doing uh, money that I never thought I, I paid for my girlfriend's entire uh, college career cash. Just amazing sort of like Wolf of Wall Street moment where this money was coming from uh, the Middle East. It was more money than I had ever seen in my entire life it was certainly more money than i needed and more money than the job required um and i was just confidently doing all sorts of crazy things really uh in business development quick quick sidebar to that uh, yeah I, one i think steve jobs is probably really upset with apple's what apple's doing right now but <laughs> probably, what, yeah. what um what i think people don't understand about that story is how difficult what you did was like, I feel like you kind of short sell sold that, but yeah. like having myself having a degree in business marketing and learning a little bit about business development and, you know, kind of that acquisition having, first of all, communicating with a third party or a, your employer that is thousands of miles away to communicate with a well-known and established business as, you know, when you go on that elevator, you're essentially, you know, 
to an extent a nobody to them. They're like, oh, this guy just bringing our secretary gifts. And to think outside of the box and get that done is phenomenal. And I, you know, I didn't know that story. And I think that's really, really wild that you have that opportunity to, you know, because I, I was trying to think to myself, like, Google, Google isn't going to tell you how to, you know, um, acquire the Discovery Network to another country um, <laughs> yeah. or where, you yep. know, there isn't going to be a video on, oh, you're just going to go through these steps. So it's really interesting to see. I could see a lot of learning places in there to pick up. I, I learned the whole time. You know, one of the things, you know, and um, I don't tell fantastical stories like that, like just to ooh and ah, the audience. I hope they're learning from that, right? I hope that there's they're learning there's a lot of power in saying yes, right? Yes, I can do that. Um, that's half the battle because even people with the uh, skill set or correct diploma or experience, uh, they question themselves like far too often. And I see that in rooms all the time and I'm like a lion. I pounce all over those people. I destroy those people. Then And those people are um, sort of my business prey. So don't be that person. Uh, is sort of the first lesson. Be confident in yourself. Say yes and and get out there. The other thing is that um, do the groundwork. Like so, I didn't have an in and I didn't have an answer as to how I was going to get that done. So I rode the elevator, and you know, riding that elevator, I met one person who could get it done, and fifty to sixty other people, right mm-hmm. from their from their janitor up to every secretary, every executive assistant, every staff member, every copywriter. Uh, there was a spool manager. He just like literally rewound tape for a living. And I uh, met them all. And so when I met the right guy, Carl Goss, and he was like, man, you've been being really sweet to my secretary. And I was like, yeah, dude, just please let me get a meeting. I'm getting nauseous going up and down this elevator. He laughed because he knew it was true. And he gave me a meeting himself. And the, that day the, of the meeting, when we were walking through the office and I'm getting handshakes from his janitor, and his secretary, and his staff writer, and his copywriter, and his spool man. He was like, dude, you really put in the work. Let's talk, you know? And then and then, just so that people know that uh, confidence is more important than anything, I took his licensing agreement to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and they couldn't read it. That's how naive I was. I was like, duh, of course I need it in Arabic, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's that's shouldn't ever stop you right and that wasn't the end of that multi-million dollar deal on which i made a very good commission uh that was just a learning experience and i think that's important that people know that it's not where you're from it's not where you go to school it's not what your degree says no one's ever seen my degree to be honest no no one who's ever employed me has ever even asked um it's not any of those things it's about just uh being really confident and thinking outside the box and believing in yourself for sure i one thing you touched on, you see it, I think you see it in your social media heavy is the idea of candor. And you kind of talked about it on, you know, the way you so-and-so quote to pounce on people in your, you know, you know, business meetings. Why do you think the idea of candor is so hard for people to understand, you know, the honesty being given and, you know, why people are so afraid to, you know, take it? Well, the thing is that people want to drink the Kool-Aid. That's, that's a fact of the matter. And um, just so that the audience doesn't think I'm too high on myself, there are a lot of people who won't work with me. I'm difficult to work with. That's a fact. That's like a that's that's noted. There are people listening to this podcast right now going, yeah, you are asshole or like we'd never work with this guy. 
a hundred percent. And that's because generally people don't like, don't want to hear the truth about themselves. You know, um, they, they just want you to like, uh, let's, um, let's not associate this with any particular brand. So let's say brand a, right. Brand A wants wants to hire you to come in and be like, man, Brand A is great. I've been dreaming of working with Brand A forever. Here are six things that I've always wanted to do with Brand A because Brand A is so perfect. Let's hear your pitch. And oh, wow, that's a great pitch. Thank you, Brand A. Yes, other guy that works at Brand A, we could do it that way too. Okay, cool. But if you hire me, and this is true of everyone who ever has, uh you know that I'm going to elevate the situation that that is what you're bringing me in for. Right. So like, uh, like the equalizer, you know what he's going to do in a room, right? He's going to look at his watch and be like, we got six seconds to kill all (laughs) these guys. You don't just bring them. You don't just bring them into the room. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't, there's, you don't bring him to brunch. You bring him to a problem. Um, and so, Usually by the time I'm engaged, it's to be like, no, Brand A, that's a terrible idea. It's been a terrible idea this whole time you've been doing it. Mm. Here are like three other ideas. I don't think I know that I have the right idea, but I think that we should be talking in this direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will certainly spot somebody that's just like kissing ass or just drinking the Kool-Aid uh, because they're weak, they don't they don't really add anything to the conversation. So that's what I meant by pouncing on them. Is I'm just gonna immediately be like, like say that guy's name is Gerald. Mm-hmm. Sorry if your name is Gerald. I'm not trying to say that Geralds are all pussies, but if I see a Gerald in the room, I'm like, I don't need any feedback from that guy. That guy's, you know what I mean. That guy wants to keep doing it this way, and I wouldn't be here if that was the right idea. What it reminds me of is kind of like a principle of saying that everyone's time is valuable. And especially if you were hired to work for brand A and mix things up and improve the conditions, that means that you're not going to sit there and be exactly as you said, just kind of kiss people's asses. Uh, You're there to, you know, make sometimes tough changes, but at the same time, you know, give them the truth about why things aren't going that, you know, going the way that they want to go. And so I think that that, you know, is one of the traits that I feel like is unfortunately very rare in, you know, today in today's society is the fact of let's, let's not worry about hurting people's feelings and more about, okay, this is what's the deficiency and this is how we're going to improve it. Or these are ways to make it better, you know? Yeah. And most of the time we're talking about product or marketing rollout. We're not talking about Mm -hmm. people. Right. So if I'm like, if I'm like, man, this brand a shoe is terrible. (laughs) And you see me say that on Twitter and then I have, I'm, asked again at a focus group and i say that shit to their face i'm not talking about sally who designed that shoe sally's a great person she you gave her a budget she built a shoe within that budget but i'm saying brand a doesn't need to be in that space whatsoever like it's just not a shoe that needed to exist you know um it's like a jordan for example it'd be like a a, a jordan pool shoe like water shoe right if I'm like, what are you like, what are you doing? That doesn't mean that Sally who designed it doesn't know what she's doing or that it wasn't a good product. It's more like, I don't need a guy dunking a basketball on the side of my pool <laughs> shoe. There was no reason that this like there was there's no way I'm gonna be able to sell this product. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's the idea is very similar to um there's a book called Creativity Inc. by one of the founders of Pixar. 
and he talks about something very similar is that they'd have almost like a think tank, but the number one rule there was, you know, honesty and candor and that you're not attacking the person, right? You're saying, you know, this product, like you said, isn't going to work in, you know, I don't need Jordan in a swimming pool or like for Pixar, they're like, you know, I don't need this drama between Woody and Buzz. I need, you know, I need this direction to happen. And if you're a director, yeah, you can take it personal, but what you're trying to do is help them. You're not trying to essentially, you know, state your dominance and break things down. You're just trying to say, you know, this isn't going to work. We should look for, you know, some other opportunity and they take it how it is. Yeah. So I'll give you, let me give you a real world example too, right? Uh, because it works and it works other ways. It works both ways too. I could be very confident in an idea I have and learn a whole bunch from the rest of the room, right? I could go, the answer is ba 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 ba, and I cross my arms and I stand up straight, and then I've got people with sixty five years of retail experience, or running a billion dollar business, and then they go no because of da da da, and I go oh well learned something today, you know, and that's fine because when I kick the idea the same way and it floors everybody, they've learned something that day, and I think that should be the only goal. It's not about like I'm not trying to win. We're not in competition. You hired me. I'm on your team. You know, uh, so a good example of this in real life is I was a port, part of a, a Jordan focus group one time and uh, well, several times, but one time in particular for this story. And they were showing us apparel and they were like, where, what do you think of this apparel living in a shop like Lapstone and Hammer in your back room where you've got Carmen Gossons and Rick Owens and Amelie on door? And I was like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> But then there were a couple products where I was like, quality-wise, this one, yeah, for sure. Or this, yeah, da-da-da. And they were, so they were like a little at, at odds, right? First of all, all Jordan brand employees have severe... They've drowned in the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, like, drowned in it. How is it not the, how is it not the best is like the immediate response. Um, and then like... And then just, you know, they've got their own confidence working for such a big brand that it can sit with John, like our sweats can sit with John Elliott's sweats. And I'm, you know, okay, well, I guess if you think so, maybe this, maybe this one or that one in terms of quality. Yeah. Okay. So why is that not, why is that not it? Look, we worked on the fit, you know, this will be some feedback from them. We worked on the fit. It fits almost identical to that. And, and, and such a high material. And I'm like, it's still got a guy dunking a basketball across 70% of the front of it. Right. So I was like, <laughs> so that's why I will wear it to and from my basketball games. I was like, you've got other, you've got other logo. Like you give, you give me your running shoes that same way. You've got other logos. You've got Michael Jordan's signature. You've got the number 23. Why don't you phonetically write out the word 23 in the flight logo? Why don't you try any number of uh, and it was like it was like i was speaking japanese or something they were looking at me like not the guy dunking the ball not the guy dunking the ball as if like they don't own other logos you know so i was like no listen man you know when it's about basketball use the jump man logo when it's not about basketball for example on a running shoe or your ath athleisure sweat stuff Use his signature or use 23 or do it. I, I even pitched them the idea of doing a higher end clothing line, higher, even higher than the stuff that they had shown me that matched maybe the way uh, an Amelion door sweatsuit feels or whatever and brand that differently. 23, 
uh, spelt phonetically with a little hyphen and a beautiful cursive and tonally place that very small on the wrist or on the hem. And they're looking at me literally like I'm speaking Japanese. Dude, like, we can't do that. (laughs) And I'm just like, why? It sounds, everything you're saying to me sounds like that's exactly what you want to do. Um, but they probably went back to Portland and I don't know if you see that shit in a couple seasons, you'll know why, but, um, they probably did went back to Portland and they were like, we can do things without the Jumpman logo. Holy shit. You know, it's, a uh, that's uh, one thing I've noticed with Jordan brand that you touch on. I'm glad you confronted is it feels like their stuff is I granted, I get like, if you're on the basketball court sweet, but it's just so loud. And like that 70% spread on a, on whatever it was is, uh, yeah, isn't going to do it for me when I'm looking at like a John Elliott or just a, you know, lifestyle streetwear, higher end streetwear clothing brand that, you know, yeah, a man dunking a basketball isn't going to work for me when I'm going, you know, trying to go to a semi-moderate restaurant and, you know, a little bit. There you go, man. And that's what I was saying about the Kool-Aid. So I'm like, okay, so imagine this. It's it's a Heather Gray French Terry. It's like a 300 GSM weight. It's a beautiful tailored fit. And it says 23 in this beautiful logo. It's a very small placement on just the hem and it's tonal. It matches the Heather Gray of the sweatsuit. I was like, that's beautiful. I'll put that in the back room. He goes, yeah, we could even do some elephant print down the sleep, bro. Shut up. Shut up. You can't stop yourself. So you know, wrapping this up or bringing it full circle to candor. I want to be that guy. I want to be like, Hey guys, here's maybe like six pretty obvious things that you're missing. And I'm not going to take the credit for it. If you go home and you, and you play with some different logos or you. So what seeing, you know, you kind of mentioned some of the details you look at when you're in that focus group, what's it been like, you know, releasing, you know, you're on your second capsule now released one earlier that, you know, sold out. Um, with Noir. What's that been like? It's an awesome project. So um, basically everyone I work with now um, and transitioning out of that job with Saudi, I I built, uh, I took some money from that and built another software company and sold the software company uh, to the Navy. And then, okay, so now we're in, now I work in uh, menswear fashion, right? And so what Noir is to me is a project basically where these guys were doing this really cool stuff with their brand. Um, and they had a lot of infrastructure for a brand. So they knew uh, how to cut a pattern, where to cut a pattern, how to get it made in the US, how to package it, how to ship it, how to take orders. Um, a bunch of stuff that I either knew would be very difficult for me to do myself because I know how it's done, or I knew would require a lot of research for me to learn how to do it. So I partnered with them and uh, they were interested in working with me to bring sort of to bring eyes to the brand. And the sort of happy medium has been uh, that I sort of get my ideas off um, so that, you know, I'm being I'm able to talk about it with a certain level of ownership. Like these are my ideas. This, these are this is my capsule. Um, and then it's produced by them. And so we've had one blowout sellout which was awesome so far as a team. Um, and then we've got this fall drop one coming, which is really, really, really exciting uh, because this is the first one that's entirely out of my own head. So I'm pretty excited about yeah, that. Yeah, uh, I looked at the hoodie and the wash. Like the hoodie looks solid. Like I'm a big hoodie guy and it 
you don't see a lot of that, you know, that style or the t- attention to detail. Um, and even some of the highest streetwear kind of lifestyle clothing um, companies. So that's one thing I'm really, you know, eyeing in on. I would argue that you won't see it anywhere else. And the reason I say that is because it's not smart. <laughs> <laughs> our, 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 car, our cost of garments is way too high. Um, and then I keep their, them on the retail end of it. I keep them lower than they would like to be because I want my people to be able to, mm-hmm. to wear it. Um, so it's almost like an art project. It's, it's literally almost like, just please let me do three washes on the hoodie, uh, direct to garment print, and then an embroidery and then a custom string. Please let me do all that after cut and sewing and producing this in LA, uh, because that's how I want it, you know, not because it makes any sense at a, at a wholesale resale keystone profit margin type sense uh it doesn't make sense like that whatsoever they're basically just funding me having getting these ideas off um but the idea is that that builds the brand right and then we could do simpler things here or there in the capsule to recoup some money and whatnot um but we've got really really cool things that hoodie i think you've probably seen the shirt maybe not uh from the capsule but it's it's up on my instagram i'm I'm wearing it in a couple photos uh, we've got really cool pants coming that are just ridiculous. Um, a Nike with Ubic Lab. Uh, just really, really, really <laughs> big, big, big ideas, big stuff, you know. So um, stuff, obviously, that they couldn't have done without me and then vice versa. I appreciate them because they're sort of my no compromise infrastructure to do the things that I want to do as well. And you, so Rack, you mentioned a, a few things that you have your hands in a little bit. And, uh, you know, as far as being like an, a creative and an artist almost in the, in the same tune and almost getting this more play. And sometimes in projects you'll have more play and a little bit less play. What is it like kind of, uh, do you have to somewhat rein back, uh, what you're saying or, you know, like how you would like it to be just like how you, um, you know, have this idea for the hoodie to be X, Y, and Z. And even though that doesn't make much retail sense um, from the business perspective, uh, do you ever find yourself having to say, okay, like, let, let me cool it on that. Or do you always go for, you know, do you always throw those Hail Marys and expect them to land? Or um, is there some sort of, you know, like how, how much playroom do you have there? So I don't know how many times I've mentioned it on this podcast so far, but I've got this God-given gift of confidence. Um, so yeah, <laughs> with everyone except for Lapstone and Hammer, uh, it's 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 almost what I say goes. You know, I respect the shit out of the other guys involved in noir. Uh, I respect the shit out of the people I've worked with in professional sports. Uh, but generally, if you're asking me to work on a project, it's because you're you're trusting in my track record and my creativity um at lapstone and hammer i'm a part of a creative team i'm the i'm the right hand man to the owner brian nadav and we do things um like it starts with me going fantastical and it works all the way through the system and 35 years of retail business and the politics of working with the brands that we work with and the space in which it lives a historical space in center city philadelphia and it lands it lands where it belongs you know and i and i and i do not i do not fight my team at lapstone and hammer so i work with my favorite photographer i work with uh 
my favorite retail designer I work with, my best friend in Brian Nadav, and my favorite retail mentor that I've ever had. Um, and so what we come up with as a team is generally uh, the best it could be in, in, in the space, you know? So it might start with a higher or crazier idea, sure. Uh, but where it lands is where it needs to be. So for, you know, the people at home, they, you know, have heard, you know, where you started and we kind of just jumped a little bit to the end, but kind of going back, you know, that, that transition from tech and, um, you know, working with, uh, the Saudi company, when you, you know, broke into, um, fashion and sneakers and kind of that range, uh, what, what was that break in for you? Uh, so I took a picture or I took a picture. I took a position at, uh, kicks on fire. So shout out real quick to Jazzy. Um, she, I, I wanted just like a little part time. I wanted to just be involved in sneakers again, uh, having left, having decided that being a YouTuber wasn't for me. And so I just wanted a, a little piece somewhere where like on my own time for a little bit of money, I could be contributing to sneakers. That's it. That's all I, that's all I wanted from the whole thing. And so that evolved to a writing position at Kicks on Fire where I was just doing like long form editorial pieces like once a week uh, to eventually Jazzy left Kicks on Fire and then Khan, the owner of Kicks on Fire, put me as sort of the lead of Kicks on Fire. And then there was a short little like overhaul rebranding under my direction where I brought in uh, people to write about different things and to write differently. And I sort of ran the structure of sneaker news there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I tried to give a little bit of love on the, on the YouTube channel. And we were going to go a couple different ways. <clears throat> and during that time, the Chuck two released and I went to Boston to cover the release of the converse Chuck two. And while we were there, and it was being unveiled, um, the design, the lead designer. So the guy who got to redesign a hundred-year-old shoe, <laughs> the most successful shoe of all time, is giving this uh, sort of introduction and and demonstration keynote. And um, he asked for questions, and I asked a question and introduced myself. Hi, I'm Rack from Kicks on Fire. And he interrupted me and was like, "Man, I love everything that you do." And if you go back on my Instagram a couple years back, I actually have video of it because I was filming him to be able to quote him correctly. But it was such a moment. He had been, I uh, was at Converse headquarters. Uh, you know, the Chuck had just gotten redone for the first time in a hundred years. And the designer's telling me, man, you're, you know, you're really the shit. You're the guy, whatever. And uh, so that kind of floored all of the press around me. Right. Um, and there's big names in that room. And um, that introduced me to a guy named Sammy, uh, Sammy Haggers. Shout out to Sammy. My brother to this day. He worked for Inked Magazine. Mm. And uh, just to kind of wrap this up in case there's any follow-up questions here. Uh, basically, we, we were having a drink later in Boston. And he was like, I know a guy named Brian who's opening a store in Philadelphia. And, you know, kind of went from there. That timeline or this like kind of the events that, you know, conspired there it's that's pretty crazy. Like just the, I guess the time, I don't know if it's the time because obviously you put the work in, but to be in that situation and, you know, unknowingly, you know, be 
appreciated by someone who's reinvented the Chuck tune. I remember, you know, that time frame and, you know, the new midsole and everything they were doing there or the insole and everything they were doing. And to be, you know, in that room and to have that, you know, be called out like that. What was your first reaction? Like in the moment you're, you're trying to record for a question and he says, I, you know, I really love what you do. I was like, holy shit, because the dude from Nice Kicks is like to the right of me and uh, Jacques Slade is like to the left of me and and, and Nightwing, I think, was sitting like two rows in front of me. I'm, I'm like, these, <laughs> you met one of these guys um, <laughs> because I didn't even really consider myself like I've never really considered myself that much of a sneaker guy. You know, uh, it was kind of it was kind of overwhelming. But like I said, it. Uh, was a testament to the work I had done. He liked a particular thing that I introduced that kicks on fire, uh, which was like basically after we gave the news write up, like this so-and-so is coming out. It's this style number. It costs this much. And this is the release date. We would write a little author's note that would be like, okay, this is rack. Truthfully, I don't like these, you know, <laughs> or whatever. It'd be like three sentences, like off the record. And uh, that w- that's what it was. Again, you can go back on my Instagram if you ever want to watch the conversation that I had with this guy. Uh, but it was that that really stood out to him or he felt was really super unique. And um, so anyway, we did that. And, uh, and then I met Sammy and Sammy was like, I know this guy named Brian and he's opening the store. You won't believe how beautiful this store is going to be. And so I went to Lapstone and Hammer on day one to cover it for Kicks on Fire. And... Um, that's when I met Brian and I saw the store and um, Philadelphia had sort of just started adopting me as like an artist of the area. And um, it was like a perfect marriage. And me and Brian were pretty much like immediately like, yeah, let's do this together and let's, let's crush this. Wow. That's, that's such a cool kind of happening of things and almost like back to back moments of like, holy shit, did this just happen? Or, you know, like this, okay, so this is going to get, you know, pretty surreal in the fact of, you know, first you get this huge, huge nod um, from somebody just so, you know, influential and powerful. And then, you know, you land into Lapstone and Hammer. Um, Would you say that that's probably one of your more like, you know, pivotal moments in your career? Absolutely. It changed everything. So that's my entire resume for working in sneakers is the guy who designed the Chuck Taylor thinks I'm cool. I mean, that was my entire, literally, literally, I had that moment and um, I had that moment. And so I had a guy in Sammy who was vouching for me to go talk to a guy who had just built like a $2 million store. (laughs) And so I was like, yeah, I'm that guy. And, um, you know, uh, especially uh, you know, I want to make it very clear to preface what I'm about to say by saying it's a team, it's a team effort, but we do have something very unique at Lapstone and Hammer and we have done things, uh, this next Friday will be three years In three years we've, uh, gotten the highest Nike and Jordan accounts that you can acquire, which is unheard of. We are approved for online sales of both, which is unheard of under the first five years, uh, we carry Rick Owens and Carmen Garcons, et cetera. We've expanded the space. We've done collaborations. We've done, we've dressed LeBron James and Justin Bieber and Chris D'Elia. And, uh, you know, I think anyone who's been following along knows that Lapson and Hammer has done an incredible, uh, job in these first three years. I think that we're a standout boutique, if not 
uh, the best were right up there. You know, I have other boutiques that I'm a fan of, Kith and Bodega. And what, if we're in that conversation, hell yeah. Shout out to Dion at Concepts as well. Um, but we're, th- we're there in under three years. So whatever it is you think about Lapstone and Hammer, our products, our projects, our social media, our photography, whatever it is that whatever impression you might have as the business, I just urge you to realize it's only been three years. I think that speaks a lot to how special a team we have there. Well, I think it stands out too, like all the little aspects that you guys do there from, you know, social um, to the way, you know, you've rolled out your brand identity and the message you put out there for Lapstone, even going to like recent things and helping your community or even like the small projects like you did. uh, I think it was Pauline's like, you know, kind of re you know bring to light the older philadelphia companies in that area that you guys are in it's all those little things that you know really resonate with the consumer and i've really enjoyed from you know my viewpoint where some people might think you know oh lapson and hammer is just a boutique um, that has high-end streetwear and clothing and you know you know they're cool they do this they have the hot releases but to me like knowing that I thought it was honestly, I thought you guys had been there for, you know, six years to hear that it's only three and that growth to have, you know, kind of everything dialed in and really represent what lap zone is, is really hard to find. If you're in that sneaker space, something similar, um, you know, without feeling that it's blown up or out of, uh, you know, just for the money essentially. Yeah. So one thing I will say about that is that, uh, Lapstone and Hammer is obviously a for, for-profit business, but uh, one of the things that we always sh- stress... So my, jo- my job, basically, for uh, anyone listening who might be uh, wondering why I'm always so vague about this shit, it's because it's a very interesting position. I'm technically the marketing director, so anything that's specifically uh, marketing is in my control in terms of like when we roll something out, how we roll something out, whether it comes out raffle or first come first serve or this or that, or the other thing, uh, the general direction of, of the media and whatnot involved. That's that. But I'm also best friends with the owner. So there's basically no decision in the world that happens with, I mean, you wouldn't, who wouldn't engage their best friend who happens to be a totally, uh, creative dude you know and successful business successful businessman by the time i had met brian i had sold a business to the navy you know mm-hmm. um and likewise he's very successful with years decades in the business as well so uh one of the things that's awesome about lapso and hammer or uh is sort of my primary focus at lapso and hammer is what is the brand um so when you think of lapso and hammer what do you think of and Brian had done a lot of the groundwork before the store opened and that we used uh, the historical location to source this really cool art deco stuff for our logo. And it was sort of had this classic clean um, elevated look to it. It's a all Italian marble and wood store. It's beautiful. If you've never been in it, you, you have to see it in person. Um, but I thought long and hard about what the brand meant to me and it was this idea of like unparalleled customer experience like if you interact with lapstone and hammer at all in in any regard you come to one of our parties or you shop only the hot stuff with us or you shop uh with us daily or you stop in it should be like this white glove experience like it should it should be the store um that we would want to shop at above all else and i think we've done a really good job staying true to that and you know some of the ways we've done that for example are when we do a raffle 
we present all of our winners. You see more winners on Lapson and Hammer than you see anywhere else. And not only that, because people like to joke around about being backdoored and this and that and the other stuff, we put all of our pairs in our gigantic 30-foot window out front and you watch the pairs come and be accounted for one by one, none of them leaving out of any backdoor to any of our friends, none of our store employees wearing the pair that you wish that you could have. Um, little tiny dialed in things like that. Um, when it comes to interacting with our social media, our social media guys is, uh, hired to engage until 1 PM or 1 AM Eastern standard time. That's very late, uh, to the rest of the, to the rest of the industry, but we want you to get answers to your questions when you want them. Um, the customer service in store, the knowledge of the staff. I mean, I, I challenge you guys to try to challenge them. Uh, we, we were very, 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 very true to this. We are long time sneaker heads, uh, first time shop runners. You know? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's intended to be a cool hangout place. Uh, but it's, it's everything should be done right. And we hate the very few times that, you know, it's not a hundred percent. So, you know, you, you have this retail, you know, boutique space and then there's rack on the side, right? So recently introduced this partnership with HP, um, which has been really cool to see, you know, them embrace a creative and you can see it in a lot of different aspects, but what, what has that meant for you to kind of get recognized on their scale and have these, um, high quality products and, you know, the ability to create the ways you want to, what has that been like? It's been awesome. So shout out to Austin and my team at HP. Uh, HP is actually the largest computer manufacturer in the entire world. Uh, it was the first place that Steve Jobs ever dreamt of working at. He used a cold call Hewlett Packard. Um, so there's there is some there was some cool that was already there. Uh, it obviously wasn't the coolest name in computers, which contractually I probably shouldn't bring up, but. Uh, but I was like, what, well, what are you, when they reached out, I was like, well, what are you guys doing? And they were like, we've got this line of computers called the Spectre line. That's like super powerful. It's super portable. Uh, it transforms in all of these different ways and you can draw on it. And we just think like, um, if you just use this shit, you could really get a lot of work done, you know? And, uh, we appreciate you as an artist and as a businessman and all you're sort of like unconventional. And so we think it'd be cool if you used an, you know, an unconventional computer or something, you know, not the brand that people would probably associate with somebody like you. And I was like, oh, well, I'm all for that if it really works. And uh, turns out their products are great. Uh, they've been supportive uh, of me. Um, I use and abuse those computers and they've stood up to me. Um, it's really been a really, really, really good partnership down to the point where I'm like, hey, I'm going to be taking some meetings in Dallas um, there's going to be some important people around, you know, and you guys want me to do or say anything in particular, they're like, please hold. And they send me their new Spectre folio and it's like made out of leather and it's crazy. And then it looked like I had like a thousand questions about my computer. It was almost distracting, uh, during the meeting, but, um, I really do appreciate them and their tools really, really are well. And I think that that little bit that we did, um, the, the, what do you even do? It was just incredible. So much so that we actually got approached about turning that into a television show. And we did a whole deck about the idea of me traveling around the country and, and meeting with other people behind the scenes in different industries and 
getting them to use HP computers is going to be like pit my ride for your <laughs> for your like non-traditional uh, behind the scenes types dudes. And we thought that was going to be such a cool idea. But uh, budgeting for this year is not looking too hot. So we'll see maybe next year that could be something that really happens. Well, I mean, that's just a huge nod, I feel like, you know, to get somebody with, I mean, like we said, has a lot of candor. And so you would not be afraid. And I've seen you do it before on Rack's Life, you know, talk, you know, like, oh, this thing's no good. Like, you know, watch out for this. It's crap. And to kind of like, you know, be like, all right, I'm HP, I'm rocking with you guys. I mean, shows a lot. A hundred percent. A thousand percent. Um they they and everyone in the whole world who knows me knows that i'm gonna i'm gonna give it to them you know the way it is for sure a thousand percent and you know another project that i'm working on now i'm sure we'll talk about some some is under armor and under armor had actually taken me off a seating list at some point because they didn't like the feedback they were getting on you know i would do these little these little bits on instagram where i would be like man i wish under armor would stop sending me these nurse <laughs> shoes all these shoes look like they're for nursing students you know um but you know come full circle i'm working on a major major project with under armor now so you know the idea that you can't be honest or or that you have to watch your words that's not true you know my audience knows that if i say something's good it's good. And there's, there's a lot of power in that. And I don't understand how anyone could build real influence when everything's good and everything is great. And well, I don't just, I just don't bother talking about the stuff I don't like. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how, how influential that type of person could be over me anyway. Well, that's what, one of the things too, I think there that was very similar, you know, I was talking about the scene list for UA for a short time, but the whole for a while when you know youtubers or influencers quote unquote were getting sent packages from champs right that was every week it seemed like it was just some yeah. <laughs> some trainer that no one wanted but they knew the influence was there and i think it was you or maybe it was uh patrick from we are or we are the trend that essentially came out and was saying you know like you guys are getting used right now like you're there's nothing on the back end you're getting some bogus shoes sometimes you get cool ones but like if you you know really care for yourself or want to represent yourself you need to work out a deal there you know not get abused um and i thought that was super cool to see from a viewer standpoint because it wasn't something viewers think about but you know thinking long term if i'm in business you always have to understand like someone's giving you something for free what are they getting out of it and is it worth being free or should you be getting something on the back end yeah i mean uh a hundred percent so if you take um I actually, I was me who actually, I think first said that. Shout out to Pat though. Pat's a good friend of mine, and and him echoing the sentiment is certainly warranted. He's definitely somebody who had to deal with it. But I, I published it to Kicks on Fire actually, mm-hmm. uh, an open letter to YouTubers because, um, sort of the industry expected standard is a one percent conversion. So if I show it to people, let's say just my Instagram, mm-hmm. um, which is like twenty thousand people. With a 1% conversion, I'm going to convert two people. So two people are going to buy it basically at retail for the cost of it at wholesale. So one and a half times over with with zero compensation. Now, if you're much larger, like some of the, like my collective following or um, some of these YouTubers, especially like take like a Kais now with a million and then one percent is this much more significant number of people uh, to be selling to for absolutely free, and in some cases, most cases, they still are. And uh, 
that's an interesting thing. I mean, you gotta you gotta mind your own business and not watch people's pockets. But if I if I gave a shit about them at all, I would definitely be like, hey, dude, have you ever thought about blah 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 blah. And then so so you alluded to earlier and you've you know dropped your Easter eggs um, throughout social media. But this UA project, right, it's it's big. It's people know what's you know, people have ideas and know what's going on. But from like your point of view, like a man whose hand is in it, I, I just want to hear from you about it. Yes. Yeah, so uh, they've signed Joelle and Bede uh, and. Joel is interested in doing is sort of breaking um the stereotypical thought of a big man with a sneaker. Uh he wants to move units and moreover he wants his line to be like genuinely cool. Um he wants it to reach outside of basketball. And so he reached out and uh through Under Armour, we're gonna do a capsule together. But uh basically I'll work with Joel and um the Under Armour team, their lifestyle team, to build uh, not only really high quality, but just really cutting edge, really cool uh, apparel. Not not apparel that you generally think of with a signature basketball line, but stuff that you'd actually want to wear or get a fit off, so to speak. Um, and so I'm really, really excited about that. It's obviously a huge challenge. I think that's what turns me on the most about it. Um, um, working on a signature basketball line and I want to make it cool. So that's a challenge. It's with a center. So that's a challenge because big men don't sell shoes, they say. And then it's with Under Armour who people just want to hate. So that's a huge challenge. Um, But I think I've got some really good ideas and uh, I've gotten like almost completely free reign from the brand so far. And uh, I have the most beautiful store in the entire world to release it at. Um, and then I think there'll be a little taste online um, that I really hope that that my following and, and, and Beats following can can eat up real quick because I would really like to deliver an, a really energized moment for Under Armour. I think they deserve it uh, for the outside of the box freedom that they've they've given me so far. And Iraq, when you talk about kind of the stylistic influence that you have on this um, release in this capsule that you're working on with Joel Embiid, do you can you kind of like give us a hint as far as, you know, what might be on there, where you're kind of going leaning as far as, you know, what you imagine that this is all going to be looking like? Yeah. So, OK, I can. Um, first of all, think about uh because I'm 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 gonna try to paint the picture for you without breaking my NDA. <laughs> so uh, think about what is cool generally in men's fashion today, and then the idea that Joel Embiid, not the 76ers or anyone else, but Joel Embiid himself owns the slogan "Trust the process." And then, so I wrote "Trust the process" a hundred different ways in my notebook until I decided or it clicked to me that there is a process to manufacturing clothes and that I thought it would be really interesting to see some of Under Armour's garments at different steps along that process. <laughs> and then I named my collection in progress. Um, so yeah, there'll be some cool and very unique pieces for sure. Thank you for uh, tightrope in the NDA. Cause that's tricky. Um, yeah, I think that's close enough without getting in too much trouble with, a, you know, this persona 
he was really popping off right now. Like Embiid and mm-hmm. Embiid versus Drummond was huge for like that week that he was doing. <laughs> What's it like yeah. trying to capture, you know, a, a kid, essentially kid from Cameroon who's been playing basketball for under eight years and is big in the NBA. People love him on social. People love his locations. You know, all these you know things he does. Is it tough to? understand that and capture that the way you want it to, to, you know, meet your needs and meet, you know, something Embiid wants to, you know, put out to the world? No, it's not tough. And because when I think of working with Embiid, I don't think of any of those challenges. I just think of two Philadelphia dudes standing back to back, me only coming up to his waist and whatever, Um, just kind of putting down for our city. So I'm really not thinking about it any bigger than that. It's a Philadelphia moment. Um, when I do something in Philadelphia, it's a moment. When Lapson and Hammer does something in Philadelphia, it's a moment. When Malcolm Jenkins won the Super Bowl with the Eagles in Philadelphia, it was a moment. When Joel Embiid came to the 76ers, it was a moment. Trusting the process is a moment. It's all of those things in the building, one night only. Uh, it's going to be a moment, you know? And so I don't think about any of the bigger challenges than that. I'm just very focused on making very, 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 very good product that fits the lapstone and hammer aesthetic and taste level. And and I'm, I think we're going to give them product that's going to generally have a lot of excitement and resale value and all of those things that, that, that a brand like that needs at this point. I think your answer is almost perfect to the way you've, you know, set yourself up is that, you know, understanding you know, what it means to you as an artist, right? This is for you. This is what your work you want to put out and you're not caught up by the outside influences, which is really, you know, cool to see. And I think it's lost in a lot of pieces of product or tech or, you know, anything today is everyone tries to appease everyone and that's never going to happen. Right. So as long as you can appease yourself, like you said, and setting up as an artist to do your best work and be remembered for it is just really awesome to hear. Yeah, I mean it's one it's one capsule, right? So again, my uh, my confidence kicks in, and I look up at uh, Embiid, like way up at Embiid, <laughs> and I and I get to tell the process to trust the process, and and that I've got us, and that it's going to be a hell of a capsule. And so, you other thing, I don't know if how many people know about it, but obviously you're at Lapstone, and you have a project with Ubic Lab on a you know a sneaker. How, right? How, if you want to disclose that, how, how's that been? Uh, it's, it's been interesting. Um, you know, first and foremost, I am my, I am me and I'm an artist. And so, um, considering both those things, when I was given the opportunity to make a sneaker, I was like, okay, let me kick this around. And then I decided, uh, it would be a really good look for the, my my friends with the brand noir as well mm-hmm. so i was like let's do a noir branded project and that i'll i'll design and lead with ubic lab and i guess by the time that this is aired mm-hmm. it's uh it's been seen by the public mm-hmm. um and so it's really just about the the good thing about ubic lab is for the most part at least for me uh, they built exactly what I wanted them to build. With, uh, with so it was almost like <clears throat> they're not involved too much in your creative process, or in my case at all. It's really just like having a like an idea printer, <laughs> you know, a really expensive, 
uh, state-of-the-art laboratory where you could be like, I wish the sneaker looked like this. And then they have all of the means by which to make it happen. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun. It's been crazy. It's insane to have and to hold the product. Um, I guess by the time that this is aired, I've been wearing it for a while as well, which I'm, which I'm anticipating being an amazing feeling. Uh, I get to shoot it with my Noir Fall Drop collection, which is pretty cool. Um, and then as a brand, as Noir, like as that project, separate of everything else, now we have a uh, a Nike Lab collab, essentially. And um, it's product that at this point and probably at the point of this podcast airing, we're not entirely sure how we'll get to the public, but it'll probably be a unique one night only uh, two size run type capsule thing at, at Ubic where I'll be there and, you know, signing the boxes or whatever for whoever wants to come through and support. So um, that's being a little predictive. I don't know for sure that's going to be how it goes, but they, they might they might already know the details by the time this podcast runs. Mm-hmm. So um, it's exciting, man. It's really exciting. I think uh, anyone in the world would love to have that opportunity. And so I was excited to get to execute it. It drives uh, some of my friends crazy that it's dropping at Ubic if it drops <laughs> when it drops. But, um, you know, it's it's for Philly. It's a Philly moment. And it's for Noir. It's a huge moment for that brand. And uh, I have my own shoe on my foot, so it's really kind of hard for me to be mad about it, you know? And so, uh, Rack, when you're talking about, you know, such a really cool and just like a, it seems like you have such unlimited reign and that would be such a fun project and you have so many things going on right now. It's kind of like, when does this guy when does this guy stop getting out? Yeah, when does this guy get out of the zone type thing? And so... Zero. <laughs> Never. I love it. Never, dude. And uh, so my question is, is let's say in 10 years, uh, the future rack, um, what do you think he's doing? And even more importantly, what do you think he's envious of you today, the present rack? Okay, well, 10 years from now, uh, I, I would hope that it's just Lapstone. I would hope that Lapstone's a couple locations deep. It's uh, it's made us all very financially comfortable and that I'm still working with the creative team there because I mean it. That's my favorite photographer. It's my favorite merchandiser. That's my best friend in the world and my favorite retail mind. So I still want to be with that team kicking ass. Before we talk too much about the future, let's talk about uh, some of the stuff I didn't touch on right now. Lapso and Hammer's got an incredible Saucony collab that we just went to Boston and, and finished up that you guys are going to absolutely flip over um so that'll be coming about this time next year um and it's coming this time next year because of how heavy-handed i was with the uh things that they allowed me to do at Saucony. uh so it is not a paint by numbers colored collab it is a it is a take on one of my favorite Saucony uh sneakers that me and brian worked very hard on um I mean, it has a ripple soul. I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about, but yo, you guys, you'll see. Um, so then there's that. There's uh, a Fila capsule that we're working on for next summer as part of a, like a return to our lifeguard series that we did this year. Um, there is, well, literally like a week from right now, uh, a three-piece dip dye set or, or mud dye set following up our coral reef with uh, three different uh, 
earth terrains. We have a Mojave inspired. We have a forest inspired, and we have a grasslands inspired. So they're three three uh, unique, super cool uh, takes on that. And then I'm trying to think about when this airs. This airs about Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. so I probably shouldn't say much more than that. But we've got big surprises. Um, see you at Art Basel. Wink. And um, anyway, back to the future. So in 10 years, I'll probably be envious of all this energy that I have more than anything, I would I would think. Uh, and the ability to still dictate what's cool. I don't know if I'll be able to do that at, at 45. It's a, it's, a, it's a struggle at 35. These kids don't want... If these kids knew half the stuff that they bought was designed by me, I think they would be more uh, opposed <laughs> to it because they're like, fuck that old fat guy. Um, I think that's going to be even more difficult at 45. So I will be missing my youth and energy for sure. The, uh, Art, Art Basel. I mean, the display on foot you did a couple years back was awesome. So insane. I look forward to yeah. seeing, you know, what you guys do as a team or what you do down there um, and seeing those images. But, and to kind of go back to that, the dip die, right? Um, mm-hmm. People just didn't know, right? It, it just started popping up on, celebrities everywhere and they're like wow those are cool nike like oh i'm gonna go to nike.com and like no you're wrong uh and then like i can't imagine it was like seeing on bieber was huge and i i'm assuming like when you saw it on la lebron that must have been just a kind of a wild day to see all this work culminate to the grand stage and then you know the hype continuing to build behind that yeah so again that's lapstone that's an entire team of people um my my input on that project, the Mud Dye project, uh, it's significant, especially sort of the crescendo that we're that we're building to uh, with that project. That uh, that uh, when that moment happens, and I'll I'll reach out to you guys personally to remind you that was of my design. Um, but everything else has been entirely a team effort. So when we see moments like that. Um, to me, Chris D'Elia was a huge moment. You know, I basically walked him into the store to to get him to put that on. Um, there, it's just incredible. You know, we just as a t- it's very validating to us as a team, uh, as a young team. It's like dream dream level stuff. You know, and when we when we when when I look at everything in the last couple of years, I mean, we brought up Art Basel and and the display on foot. Like when I made those to wear, I was like, I'm an artist. I'm going to Art Basel. I need to do something, and I made those. I couldn't have anticipated that. I mean, when I when I was going to leave those at the at the Winwood Walls in Miami, and I'm walking down the block, there was like 38 kids, like in like there was 38 that we could count because they were so obviously following me. Um, there was probably over a hundred and, and those kids like, I mean, I partied the whole night before I dropped those shoes off. I didn't drop those shoes off until like 5 AM and they were just following me. Um, that was amazing. And that, and what we're, what we're planning for art Basel this year is even cooler. Um, just to, just to be a part of those moments. And, you know, I, I, like to make it clear that like I appreciate those uh those moments that they're not lost on me uh that I'm not used to it um that I'm not jaded in any way it's very special to me in fact even on the shoe that I'm putting out with Ubik there's multiple uh swooshes on the one side paying homage to 
my friend John Geiger because Geiger called me the day after Art Basel and was like, I will literally pay for you to make 500 of those and we could release them together. And so when I had the opportunity to make my own shoe and release it at retail, I thought, let me give a little nod to Geiger because I mean, he would have, he would have literally paid to put me in that same situation. So, um, that, that's all to say, like, uh, it's not lost on me. If you're listening to this, I'm not like pretentious or lost in my own sauce. This is all just as crazy to me. Um, I just like to make it as clear as possible that like, it it really just requires a a whole lot of hard work and focus and basically nothing else. It's not about the degree that you get or where you get it from or where you're working right now or yeah, it's so easy for him to say living in Philadelphia. I'm from Mountain Home, Arkansas. Yeah, I used to live in Mountain Home, Arkansas. You know, <laughs> get up, I say that's a, get a spot to choose. Yeah, get up and get at it. You know, that's literally the most important thing. Yeah, and then uh, I guess the last question I have is you once quoted the death of the author, um, which I don't, some people probably are unfamiliar with, but what, you know, resonates about that, you know, that uh, short page segment about the death of an author to what you do today? So there's two, two truths of being an artist, and neither of them are my own idea, but they're two things that I've really had to come to grips with. Um, one is that art is never finished. It's only abandoned. And I forgot who said that. Maybe it was Andy Warhol. I don't know. Sounds like Warholian. Anyway, um, that's true. So I never want to give up a project. I'm like, oh, like I want to make six changes to this Ubiquitu already. Um, but the fact of the matter is I have to let them go at some point. Like, and uh, that's something that I, that I continue to work on. And the other is the idea of the death of the author, which is basically like a literary piece that describes the idea that um once you create something and you give it to the world like you're not in control of the way that it's perceived or understood and you would drive yourself mad uh trying to trying to control that so that's another thing i have a a hard time with you know like people calling the dip dye project tie-dye drives me insane but there's not like there's nothing i literally nothing i can do about it. i can't use the lapstone account to reply to people oh it's dip dye oh it's dip dye all day um you know or when the when the new mud dye drops people calling it the new colors of the dip dye will infuriate me but um there the idea or the thing that resonates with me uh, so much about that particular idea, though, is that once you sort of concede to the idea that the audience is going to find its own story and it's going to find it's going it, to is that it'll place its own value on those things. It'll they'll, it'll be important to people. So, Rack, you've given you know we've looked at you from '90s kid with a Walkman to uh, the the man who was riding the elevator to get this Discovery Network deal to now having his hands in pretty much everyone, a lot of things people just don't understand. And for these people that have listened and, you know, are now familiar with you or maybe are a little bit more familiar with you, where, you know, you talked about some of your projects, but where, where can they find you? Um, I'm very approachable on social media. Uh, if it's something that you could tweet to me, then tweet it to me. If it's something that you want me to see, maybe at me on uh, Instagram. And if it's something that you feel, um, would take a little longer to express then you're welcome to email me i have a public email out so uh my social is at 
at Raxlife underscore. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. If you just start spelling Raxlife, it should it should come up. And then I have a, a public email there too, where people pitch me all the time. Or if you feel like um, you just want to bounce an idea off somebody, uh, you'll know at the very least that I'll that I'll give it a read. Um, and uh, if I can help, I'll I'll help. Or if I have a quick piece of advice, I'll give a quick piece of advice. And then just yeah, just keep your eyes open. I talk about uh everything on there to whatever degree i'm able to now and to some people i'm the guy who did the houndstooth short and to some people i'm the guy who wish there was more episodes of rack's life and to some people um shortly i'll they'll really want the nike and <laughs> a little longer after that they might really want that Saucony or the dip dye or how do i get a pair of, whatever it is that um that you appreciate about what i do or that you want to be a part of uh, come along, follow along. Yeah. Thank you, Rack. We really appreciate your time. Really a kind of a modern Renaissance man in some aspects. Um, as you guys can hear, he's involved in so much more than what you think he is. And it's a lot more than just sneakers or a lot more than, you know, just this social entity. Uh, we really hope you learned something. There's a lot of great tidbits there and, you know, learning about how Rack stepped out and did his own thing. And, you know, it was built on it and has been passionate and is putting out quality work as something you guys, you know, it's really influencing for me to see as someone who does have a degree in marketing and does want to work for themselves at some point, but understanding there there's, if there's a will, there's a way and you just got to find the way. Yeah. Just, just do it. <laughs> no, that's funny though. I should get a check, but that's the best way on earth to, to describe it. Just get out and do it. I'm, I am all of the things you've heard me say, on this podcast and the guy who's still getting yelled at by his girlfriend because I haven't done the dishes. I'm just like you. Um, there is no secret sauce. You just have to get out there and, and pursue the things that you love for sure. And if you guys enjoy this podcast, we'll leave all of Rack's information in the description so you can find him and bounce ideas or, you know, see the projects he's working on and they're coming up and see, you know, the quality of work he's putting out. And, I think the best part too is you'll get to see some of the sweet Marvel cards that he's high quality prints of on his Instagram where, you know, if he ever gets rid of Dr. Doom, I'll take it. But, uh, Hey, can I, can I point out something about that really quick? Because it's never been noticed by anyone and it drives me nuts. Yeah. Okay. When I run the Marvel cards, Mm -hmm. they, they serve as a break in my Instagram. And if you look at the photos before the Marvel card and then the photos after the Marvel card break, I changed the tone in the photos, almost like thematically changing my Instagram. So those Marvel cards also serve as like a, as an artistic break or breath for me to change the photos moving forward. So anyway, no one's ever fucking noticed that before. (laughs) And I'm just having my one arrogant artist moment where I'm like, go fucking tell me how cool that is. So go (laughs) check that out. Appreciate it. And thank you. <laughs> so, you know, that's uh, at Rack's Life underscore on Instagram. If you're looking for those breaks, we're on all major platforms. Really appreciate your guys' time and really appreciate you, Rack. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you do. Thanks, guys. Appreciate being on. Anytime, Rack. Have a good one, guys. <laughs>